and welcome to Poetry Spotlight, presented by the Ohio Poetry Association. I am your host, Jeremy Jusek, and with us today is Cortez Harris. Residing in Cleveland, Ohio, Cortez was once a second grade teacher in the Cleveland Public City Schools. Harris was the Ohio Poetry Association's 2021 Poet of the Year. He authored We Made It to School Alive, a full-length collection of poems published by 12 Arts Press and Nothing But Skin, a poetry collection from 2014 by Writing Nights Press. He is the first recipient of the Barbara Smith Writer-in-Resident at 12 Literary Arts and a 2020 Baldwin House Fellow. His poetry and ideas have been featured in The Plain Dealer, Idea Stream, and The City Club of Cleveland. Harris is represented by McKinnon Literary Agency. His works in progress are two picture books and a middle grade novel. Cortez, thank you so much for joining us. So good to be here. Could you please start us with a poem? Absolutely. Um, so the first poem I'm going to share is entitled, We Made It to School Alive. Um, and this particular poem walks us through an experience of a few different Black boys um, who are in, interacting with an actual butterfly. And I pretty much use this extended metaphor to sort of just highlight the innocence of Black children and how even a tiny insect is not alarmed. Somewhere, a butterfly settles near a herd of boys flowering. They draw closer. The butterfly doesn't flutter. They raise their hands to prove they're unarmed. Hundreds of mahogany colored butterflies burst out of them like lightning joining hands with fireworks. Only God seems to notice this glitz because in the beginning, he said, let there be light. And a butterfly boy, as black as beginning, appeared in the flesh. I am so glad you started with that poem. Because um, I want to talk about your book first. But also, why a butterfly? Yeah, why a mahogany color butterfly? So this was an experience that I had with my son. I took my son to a park. And busy, busy body kid. Uh, ran towards a butterfly. Um, the butterfly did not move. In fact, the butterfly just was unmovable. It didn't move. It 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 didn't flutter. It didn't have no movement. And it and I'm like, wow. I was just fascinated by that moment of stillness. Um, and here my and here it was. My son's a black boy, and we know the narrative about black children um, being perceived as a threat. And my son. Um, didn't pose any threat to a butterfly. And it almost felt like the butterfly could sense that safety. That's amazing. Yeah. Oh my God. Okay. So yeah, this, this is from the book. We, we made it to school alive. And uh, I was hoping you would talk about where the book originated. Um, and also the perspective that it provides education and where educators are today, because you have been in the system for a long time. Mm. Yeah, um, you know, I like to think of this book as an archive of the lived experience of my students and their caregivers. A lot of my students would confide in me as a um, teacher, and I felt like I became like a repository of their stories. And, you know, as a poet, we're always noticing everything. So for me, it's hard for me to ignore these stories. In fact, I felt like they were imprinted in my memory. And I feel like I want to do something useful for it, with it. Um, I also recognize that my students came from um, marginalized backgrounds and, you know, um, economically under-resourced, um, didn't have much of a voice. So I felt like here is a poet, which is myself. And I had an opportunity to sort of like describe their experience. So I think of my book um, in some ways as a chance to inhabit the voices of marginalized students in their families as a way of them being written into the world. And I got the opportunity to do that. And I'm so grateful that this is a collection that um, I feel like it's beyond me. Um, it goes beyond me. It goes beyond um, my experience in, in many ways and, and intersects with the experiences of others. Yeah, I, I feel that 
intrinsically. I, th- I think like, because I've, I've mentioned on the podcast before that I have a hard time with the confessionalist eye. Mm. And some of it is that I don't, I feel weird kind of making that experience. But I also like, I like, like trying to capture the voices of other people. Mm-hmm. Likewise. It, it's, it's therapeutic, but it also feels like it makes the poetry about somebody else. Yeah, yeah, I can agree. And that's... Sorry, go ahead, go ahead. And, and that's, you know, I feel useful in the world by um, writing about the experience of others. I also feel like it helps me to clarify what's happening in the world, it helps me to navigate the world in my mind, you know? Um, and it helps me to be um, less transfixed on my experience as if my experience is the only experience um, that matters. You know, there are far more other people who are having experiences that also matter as well. And that's not to say my experiences don't matter because they do. But um, yeah, I, I just want to give voice to that and give voice to the humanity of others in ways in which I'm also um, giving voice to my own. Yeah, and I think in your collection, you're very good at when you do insert yourself or insert the speaker. Because sometimes I, I get the feeling that it's not always you. Like you have a smile. Yeah, it's not always me. <laughs> it's not always you, but it's it's always connected to the people around you. You, you don't. Oh yeah. You don't feel like an isolated poet. Mm-mm, no. Do you think that teaching marginalized students requires more than teaching skills? Like I, I get the sense that you're also saying that you're part therapist and part advisor and part, you know, stoic figure in their life that they may need. Yeah, you know, that's a good question. I think the rigor of teaching in a under-resourced school that serves marginalized children is very complicated because a lot of these students have parents that did not feel like they benefit from the school system. And yet there seems to be um, an underlying hope that, okay, maybe this time they will, uh, my children, my offsprings will benefit from this. So I feel like um, as an educator, I'm almost trying to re- trying to, assure parents that, you know, we're going to get it right. As an educator, I'm going to get it right. You know, maybe you didn't get to live out the possibilities that you want to live out because you felt stifled in a system of education that really um, you felt, you know, suppressed by. But hopefully this time, you know, um, your child can experience some growth um, in ways in which that you didn't experience. So maybe you can begin to live vicariously through that experience. But yeah, it's that also, it's just honestly wrestling with the fact that there are so many schools that are still separate and unequal you know and I have a hard time you know wrestling with the fact that there are schools and funding is absolutely something that is expected you know there is no depletion of 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 funding, of resources. In fact, um, it never occurs to, to them that that could potentially happen. Um, but in um, under-resourced schools such as my own, it's just like funding feels like a, um, if, if there is any funding at all, it, it feels like a means of just like scarcity because you're trying to figure out like, how can I hold on to this, you know, and what can I do with it, you know? Um, so that's something that I often struggle with is like, wow, like there's so much lack yet. There's so much prosperity going on in other school systems. Yeah. Do you, do you ever use writing to open those doors for students? Like, do you ever use it to teach them to give them? Yeah. I mean, um, can you, can you ask your follow-up question? I know you're asking something else. I'm trying to. Oh yeah. No, just to, just to, to give them that, because you were talking about like, you know, this is, you're, you can use education as like a means to open a door for them and show them that there is hope that they have this, this. And I was wondering if, how writing plays into that for you. Yeah, for me, um, it, I feel like it plays a lot more now because writing has become um, a means um, of living for me. It is my career now. Um, it's not something that I relegate to a hobby. I'm saying how I'm able um, to provide for myself and my family 
so to think that I'm able to function through writing, um, it's remarkable. So I, now I'm eager to um, interface with school systems to show s- students and give them more of a, a broad sense of imagination that like um, you can become a writer, you know, um, you can become a, a storyteller, you can create a story arc and it can become a career. Okay. And I think it's important that, you know, particularly kids who come from marginalized backgrounds, that they can see that scope of possibility. Um, because after all, I mean, a lot of literature that they're reading is not a representation of them. A lot of this, this teaching staff is not a representation of them, you know, so that I can come to them as a former teacher, now a, um, a full-time writer, I think. Um, and, I, and I do, and I still do talk to kids, but I'm looking forward to talking to more kids so that they can kind of see that, like, oh, wow, like, this is part of the range of possibilities. Sure. Yeah. And cause you, you still do tons of youth workshops now. Yeah, I do. Um, I've kind of scaled back a little bit cause I'm working on um, a few different projects, but um, the goal is always to get back in this classroom setting in some capacity to sort of, you know, teach um, language and, and, and teach um, sort of the possibilities for their own writing. So, yeah. Nice. Do you, do you have any tips for working with kids or? Um, oh yeah uh, one tip is to bear it all tell it all no matter how odd and you know judge it later um, I, I think the focus should be more on process than polish I think oftentimes writers um, particularly younger writers feel like they have to be already established as a young writer emergent writer but to realize that like we're all you know on a trajectory and we're all still trying to uh, accumulate work we're all still trying to like build our you know our story storytelling abilities are crowd choices but really just saying like it starts with the content put the content there first no matter how odd um and then we can edit polish revisit it later but yeah so i always and that's how i generally write i generally kind of start with my eyes closed i write with my eyes closed first and i do that so that i can just kind of let it out unfold out of me and then i go back and i revisit and i revise and yeah that makes first step I think I have some of the sort of the same philosophy because I think I there's someone someone told me this concept that I've really latched on to mm-hmm. RP, RPM raw poetry mm. material. Okay, and I think it's easier to take a poem that has a lot like high RPM and mm-hmm. pare it down to something sensible mm. than to take something sensible and try to jam RPM into it after the fact. Mm. You know what I mean? And I think I think that that like letting loose. And just just bearing open the bag of tricks and reaching in and grabbing whatever comes out, mm-hmm. throwing it on the canvas Pollock style, and then instilling the order later is an easier. It's easier for me, at least. I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and also just I like knowing. And I, I read this book. Um, it's a book called Write, "Writing Poetry." Um, I think it's written by a gay, guy named um, Wallace. I uh, can't think of the last names. Writing poetry, and he talks about how like sometimes it's important that a poet knows when not to write. And that way you're sort of like um, finding your muse and you're allowing certain experiences and whether they're fragmented experience or clear experiences um, to kind of be imprinted in your mind. And you, whether you know it or not, you're materializing like a poem and then it sort of like builds up in you and then you feel an urgency to actually write. So like trusting your day to day live experience that, you know, you are um, generating a poem, whether you realize it or not. So I like to, and, and, and that might also even look like maybe, and something I still do now is like, you know, I might catch an image. I might um, jot down a, a phrase. I might um, jot down some notes and then I, and whether I use it or not, it's, it, it, it's going to generate something or it'll be a launching pad for something else. So yeah, writing is very weird. Um, <laughs> it's very weird. And cause no one really has a clear path or clear lane on how they come up with their stories. But I think it is important to, listen, to be sensitive to language or also be sensitive to your own um, experience with language. Absolutely. I think it's, that's a really good point because I think, say you're acting, right? If, you, mm-hmm. if you're acting, you may have to raise an eyebrow. Yeah. You know you have to raise an eyebrow. And <laughs> I think there's two components to this. One, I think that they're, they're, you have to move beyond where it's muscle memory or you have to move into where it's, it's a muscle re- reflex, right? Mm, so yeah. Think, oh, I need to raise my eyebrow here. You know, then you have to like think about doing it and the audience will be able to tell that you're just acting, mm-hmm. that, that, you're, wow. that you're like out of the moment. But also 
it's a deliverable product that you can understand. Like, you know, you have to raise an eyebrow. That's the thing you have mm-hmm. to do. Or, you know, you have to cross the stage here because the blocking told you to, but with mm. writing there, I think there's two aspects to it. One, a lot of writing techniques, I think are muscle reflexes too. I think mm. that not enough people talk about having to write enough until it, you reflexively respond to the world around you without having to think mm. about how to frame it. Wow. And I think the second thing about that is unlike an eyebrow or a stage cross, there's no tangible thing that you know you got there with. Like if, wow. you, if you do an act, a good acting performance, it's because you were told what to do ahead of time. And then you have the acting toolkit and you put in years of work. I'm not trying to minimize or trivialize acting in any way. So <laughs> no hate mail, please. But, <laughs> but with writing though, that it's, it's a more nebulous product. You don't know when you're done. You don't mm. know, you don't have an eyebrow raise. You have a thing and you're like, well, I hope this is good enough. And then you workshop and find out nobody knows what the hell you're talking about. So, mm. <laughs> I think and, that's along with it. I don't know. I think. Yeah. I just- <laughs> no, I think. I really think you are onto something because it makes me think about there's this book I'm reading. It's called um, Madness and Method. In the, and this was also referred to one of my favorite writers, Jasmine Ward, a fiction writer. And it talks about how, like, oftentimes, especially in the sort of the practice of teaching creative writing or poetry, we're almost um, sort of influenced to access the part of our brain that is a little bit more logical analytical but that also can censor out sort of the deep essence the deep material that's that's part of the other side of your brain which is more intuitive right which is the part that you have to be able to access to really get at the depth of sort of your um your your intuitive um muse you know um the creative part and and i and i'm like oh wow so I'm, i'm i agree with you in terms of like sometimes we can be so analytical about our craft choices that it censors out sort of the, that, that deep um, creative essence that is there that no one can teach us, you know? Yeah. That's that just made me think about that. Yeah, no, you're, I think you're absolutely right. And like, when I sit down to edit, I'm in that analytical mindset. I'm no mm. longer being free and open. And, and I think mm. maybe that's why that, like going back to RPM, you know, that, that, that I have a harder time putting it in later on because I'm, if I'm sitting there quibbling about whether or not to add an M dash or where to, where to cut a line <laughs> and, and like move it to the next line, you know, or how the white space frames everything. Mm. I'm not focused anymore on the emotional or those, those reflex things that I get to enjoy when I'm, when I have a blank page. Yeah. I love that. Hmm. <laughs> it's like, I want to think about this now. <laughs> Definitely, yeah, that's, yeah. So let's, let's get back to your, unless you have something else to say, let's get back to yeah, your, because mm-hmm. um, I want to talk about the speaker. The speaker is, it follows a father and a son, and mm-hmm. uh, and what's consistent through some of the poems is that he feels, because it's, it's kind of like a commentary on the American dream. It's always, mm-hmm. you want to give your kids better more than what mm. you had personally mm-hmm. and this father doesn't feel like he can do that mm. and so i'm curious where did the father-son duo come from for the book and what elements of the relationship do you hope stand out for readers when they're reading it yeah there's definitely um <clears throat> a a relationship between father and son as almost the through line in part i like to think maybe um almost i defaulted to that in part because i am a father but i was also very much sensitive to the emotional and physical presence anytime a father walk in um so i think i was very much um sort of um drawn to a father anytime i saw a father walk through the classroom door or through the school door because I didn't see very many of them um and the one father I did talk to and there's a poem about parent teachers conference it's a very unflinching poem and I'm really just pretty much paraphrasing what he said to me I mean trying to get at sort of the root 
of what he's saying. Um, that poem is very much sort of like the effect of all the other poems. And that really bears sort of the story arc of a father and son or a father trying to really um, reassure his son or reassure himself that maybe there is, I don't have to just lean into my abject hope. Maybe there is something um, much more greater than what I can possibly imagine. But yeah, so yeah, there's definitely this through line of just trying to um, sort of build a story around the scope of a father and how that relates to um, him being a father, but also how that relates to his own child's um, possibilities. So yeah, um, I vividly remember just um, having these conversations with fathers and very committed, you know, to their child's schooling, but also very committed to, um, in some ways, optimism. Although in the face of what they were describing on the surface level, it felt like maybe they were very um, cynically indifferent, but I knew underneath all that, the fact that they showed up today you know, the fact that they um, brought their kid, their kids to the conferences, you know, yeah. the fact that they had yeah. questions, you know, the fact that they will walk around and scan the classroom, let me know, like, there has to be some hope there. There has to be a, t this must be a testament of hope, because otherwise they didn't have to show up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and do you think it was, it was in part a response to your optimism? Because you strike me as an optimistic person. Oh, uh, yeah, I, I, I like to think, there's a quote, I can't remember, I don't know who wrote the quote, offhand but um, one of my favorite quotes is um, we don't know enough to be um, pessimistic or cynically indifferent so I like to think I am someone who's very hopeful um, and that's I think that is sort of like the undertone of my book is there's even like there's always I'm, I'm always drawing you in with hope you know in some ways I feel like the arc of my book depends on hope I don't think I could even wrote that book if there was no sort of um uh truth telling about how I am optimistic in my life and um, how I don't know enough to be um, pessimistic. And, and even from the title, we made it to school alive. You know, I could have said we didn't make it to school alive, you know, and, and I'm just sort of stretching towards aliveness. I'm stretching towards um, hope in ways in which that um, are quite complicated, um, but important. Yeah. Well, and it, it would be a very bleak book without the hope. <laughs> yeah. I mean, even like, a, I knew to like, and how, I th and I'm very sensitive to lines in my poems. Like, I believe that longer lines sort of indicates um, difficulty, serious, seriousness, but shorter lines sort of indicate for me lightness, delicacy. So you're, you'll notice throughout intentionally longer lines sort of showcases like oh this is a very intense poem but you see smaller lines which poems like alive their signs are very shortened you know or the line the very first um poem you know where he's throwing a paper airplane or imagine throwing a paper airplane of his homework into the sky you know and and um you know like jump like hopscotching in um you know um chalk outlines like there's very vivid um sort of accents of hope there and I knew I needed to do that to sort of balance and blend in hope. Otherwise, I felt like the book would have created a false sense of um, a, a, a real false sense of my narrative direction, where the narrative direction was hope for me. Like I genuinely hope that someday that all the students that I was teaching and the students that other teachers are teaching that they experience, you know, um, academic success, that they experience, um, you know, uh, achievement in, 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 in regards to in ways in which their parents didn't experience that. Right. Um, and then and I can think of myself, you know, I, I don't come from a, a point of economic privilege. You know, my backdrop is not um, full of any sort of um, monetary privileges. Um, but yet I am in a position where I'm able to sort of um, provide for my son and my family. And I'm like, wow. Like, and, and so in some ways, I'm defying the odds that were set up, set, um, that was sort of kind of like buried me. And I hope that kids can sort of um, do something um, similar, if not greater. That's astounding. I, I wish I could have had you as a teacher. <laughs> <laughs> so I have a question for you. This is getting a little bit off track, but what... How would you, what, where do you think the American dream stands today? Because I'm more, I'm much more pessimistic than you. And I will freely admit, I kind of think the American dream's dead, but I want to know how you feel about that. Mm. Um, 
it's very complicated because I understand that for 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 my ancestors and for me now, like American Dream is very much a myth. And I even realized that just through some of the smaller nuances of the fact that schools are still segregated. You know, the fact that there is a concerted effort to ignore the historical residue of our racialized past, the fact that there is book banding, you know, Mm -hmm. the fact that um, we are far more economically deprived, you know, and yet there still seems to profess like this sort of spirit of like um, mobility, universal mobility within American society. And I'm just I'm appalled by that because some of the most. The most rigorous workers are still. Um, receiving an unlivable wage, you know, that's my mom, right? And I'm also thinking about the economic gap, the income wealth economic gap, you know? And I also think about like the, how the, you, you know, you think about how income, you know, is it, wages, you know, is stifled and yet the cost of living is expanding, is substantial and it's not, and, and income is not aligning with that, you know? Um, there is so many disparities are happening right now. So it's hard to sort of even fathom a sense of there is a, 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 a American dream. I don't know where that is. <laughs> I, I, I don't know that to be true, right? Yeah. But finally, uh, I, I want to say this. Um, the only dream I believe in is nightmare sometimes, just to be honest, you know? Um, I am always trying to stay abreast on my historical past and I'm always sort of appalled and I can't believe some of the things that my ancestors had to grapple with and what yet they are still grappling with you know and, and I'm, I don't mean to go really deep but I do want to say um, sometimes I'm appalled to think about how you know I, we were not even considered our humanity was never considered to be human you know and and that this is not fictionalized, you know, the fact that um, we needed legislation to recognize us as human beings, you know, that that sense of humanity was not recognized from just our very breath, you know, and the fact that there are so many laws that are still in place that sort of stripped us from voting rights, you know. So I, I think what I'm saying is when I speak of hope, I speak of the, the achievements that I felt and I still feel that somehow we were pushing towards even in the in, against all the teeth of terrifying odds recognizing that there are still odds yeah yeah like there was never a time where black writers could write that's true I mean you that, know? Was, that was <laughs> that was Karenka's big thing about the origin origination of the black power movement was him yeah. saying the Harlem Renaissance yeah we have it but it's still it's still black writers, black musicians, black artists trying to write to a white aesthetic. We need oh, to yeah. develop our own aesthetic. Oh yeah, absolutely. And then absolutely. that got hit tremendous pushback because white people were yeah. offended by that. <laughs> mm. You know? Um Yeah, there's still there's still a dominant audience and and very much there's sort of like this sort of like dichotomy of like I am writing trying to write in my culture, which is not the dominant culture but also trying to sort of appease the dominant culture so that I can be able to sustain myself and write in. But so it's very um, conflicted because it's like in one end, it's like, I want to be able to tell my stories in a way in which that I am sort of giving voice to my lived experiences while, while also I'll, you know, sort of the gaze for the general, you know, there's this theory that like, oh, when people are reading books, they assume that it's quote unquote, you know, a a, a, a white um, protagonist, right? But it's just like, they come with so much sort of like racial bias, but it's just like, I want to better tell my stories and also not have to sort of like um, restrict my voice to adapt with sort of like the dominant uh, audience, you know? Yeah. It's, yeah, it's very weird. It, a wake-up call for me. I was reading, I was trying to read some books on, 
you know, the Black experience. And one mm-hmm. of the things I read, um, one of the authors had said, you know, white people have this idea that they don't have ideas about race. They don't have, they don't see themselves as white. They don't see themselves as anything. They see themselves as the base, as the, mm-hmm. as the common ground and everything else as an other. Mm. And I had never thought about myself as a white guy until I read that passage. And I thought it was an important passage for me to read because it was something Mm -hmm. that I needed to focus and and like face and say, you know, just because, and and to your point about like reading something and saying, oh, this protagonist, I see myself in that protagonist. So it's a white guy until something happens that is specifically black. Mm Mm-hmm. That is something that I think a lot of, I think that's a lot of something a lot of white people have to confront. Yes. Otherwise, it's hard to get into that experience and to understand what we don't have to deal with. Mm. Mm. You have you have a through line actually. You, I, your book is has these global themes throughout it too. I'm glad you brought it up because you have a you have the poem um, wealth and. Mm. It's an old money poem. It talks about basically, you know, like in, in Hamilton, they, they, they have the song, you know, oh, the Spencers had this street named after them. Mm-hmm. We still have the wealthy Spencer family. Like America yeah. was supposed to escape old money, but here we are, you know? Yeah. And so you, your poem talks about that. It, and it talks about how modern disenfranchisement has a through line going all the way back to mm. slavery. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm, I wanted to know what is your book commenting on? I know it's going to be many of the things that you've already brought up to this point, mm-hmm. um, but in, especially in terms of minority youth and your teaching experiences, where does your book go? And well, of course, I want to clarify. I want to clarify something. So wealth was not part of the collection. That's um, a new poem, a relatively new poem. Um, that poem is actually in the form of a pantoum. Um, so that you know, the first, well, line in the stanza, line two and four of a contrain reoccurs as the first and third line of a succeeding contrain. So I want to be very clear. And that poem was ultimately based on um, uh, Tainashi Coates' loosely based on the case of reparations. So really trying to sort of underscore and wrestle with the brutality of forced labor and how it built this country. And yet, you know, um, we were seized under the tyranny of enslavement. So yeah, that's more about speaking to reparations. So that's an entirely different collection. I um, apologize. In terms of, no, I didn't. I didn't clarify. Thank, thank you for clarifying that because no. I, I read your book a couple of weeks ago and I, I mixed them up. <laughs> and, that, and that's fine because there is sort of this sort of running thread within my writing where I am sort of um, wrestling with our ra- racialized past. I think um, where my book sort of anchors or is grounded in it's more of the um, plight in education. I think that's sort of where I am sort of reaching towards is trying to unpack this, the, the, the inequities in education. Um, the fact that I taught at a school that was considerably underfunded and knowing that there are other schools that are not too far away, that they are um, luxurious. Right. And also understanding that um, equity in school is a real concern because that means that there is a aspect of our society that is still disenfranchised. Um, These children are still part of our future and our past. Right. So the fact that we sort of like compartment compartmentalize children these set of children is going to get resources versus, I mean, it's, 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 it's kind of scary. There's a book called, um, um, it's by Patina Love. And it's about, we want to do more than survive. And that book, in some ways, I feel like I'm echoing that book because that book takes a hard stance on how children are brutalized in school. In fact, James Baldwin said the first time a child meets their oppressor is in the school context. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's ironic that, for example, there's a poem called Metal. In the poem Metal, what I'm underscoring 
is that in specifically um, urban schools, there are metal detectors. And in suburban schools, there are no metal detectors. Kids don't have to pass through any scrutiny, right? And if and so there's this sort of sense that, and I think it misinformation where there's sort of this limited um, you know, awareness that, oh, if you enter a school building, an urban schools building, then you may be unsafe, which that's not necessarily the case. In fact, I asked the security officer and I said, in this school, as long as you've been a security officer, which was 20 years, have a kid ever brought anything like a, um, a gun or anything that could pose a threat? He said, no. So I was thinking about like in other schools, suburban schools, you know, where generally disproportionately mass shootings happening in these suburban school areas. My thing is, is if you're going to put a metal detector in an under-resourced school, put them in every school. Because if you went to the, uh, the airport, John Hawkins Airport, and they said they uprooted the metal detectors, and then and I went to the Columbus Airport, and I said, oh, there's still metal detectors, I will be uh, alarmed, right? So I think we're sending the wrong message. So the sort of um, intricacies of school is so complicated. So what I'm doing is I'm trying to sort of like um, address many of the array of concerns that sort of envelopes um, education. Excellent. And, and what has the response been to your book? You know, surprisingly, I've been in conversations with people who I just, I mean, honestly, I've, I've, I've had um, a number of people interact with my book. Um, it's wild because, and from many different economic backgrounds, from many, many different um, racial backgrounds, right? Um, so it's wild because it's like, I, this book, I feel like I am humanizing um, the, the children and families that I work with, you know? Like people get to see and read about their humanity. And in and, and, and part, you know, these people who have expressed to me sort of them sort of wrestling or mulling over my book um, would never have to experience some of the discomfort and the difficulties and the unjust in, um, injustice that my students are experiencing. So I feel like my book, my the greatest a sort of tremendous impact is that I feel like when you read my book, you're sort of wrestling with true historical accounts of racism. I think you're really um, facing um, the inequities in our school system and you're not um, ignoring this real moment in American life where black and brown babies are still um, experiencing discriminatory actions, are still experiencing um, unjust school environments, you know, um, you know, terrible school environments that many people would never send their children to, right? So I think you are starting to understand the fact that, oh, there are schools, there are brick and border schools who have AC, and there are also brick and border schools that don't have ACs, that have fans with dust, thick dust blowing out the fans. There are schools that came in for hand soap, right? And I'm addressing a lot of these different concerns in my book based on the experience I had at a school that is 100 years old um, and a school that very much represents sort of like, I think, sort of the um, disparities um, in our educational system. Absolutely. Yeah, and it's, it's hard to get across to someone when the problems are all encompassing, all encompassing like that. Mm. If, you, if you tell someone, well, our school doesn't have AC, they'd be like, well, I didn't either. I grew up in blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. But that's, that's missing the larger point. And it's hard to yeah. get that larger point without attacking it from a bunch of different perspectives or you know, going into a wealth of detail and, and mm -hmm. trying to give context to it. Yeah. God. Um, you, had, you had mentioned earlier, because uh, you had talked about... Uh, line lengths and you, you had mentioned structure mm. i want to i want to i want to bring that back because your writing you use unconventional structure mm -hmm. really often you 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 have atypical atypical for, formatting you'll 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 go you'll go heavy on lowercase mm -hmm. um, but you also use like visual things like boxes and things to, to parse out the text and separate right. um right. 
So what is your structural philosophy? And do you play around with the text in the rough draft stage or the editing stage? Um, so I, um, so when I'm writing, I tend to, I like to do, I, I like to use um, form. I do, let me be very clear about that. Um, I'm, I, I do like um, poem forms, like sonnets. I love, um, you know, stanza forms, like couplets, quatrains. But what I tend to do is I start with form and I break apart form. Okay. That's if that makes sense. Um, you know, because I feel like it kind of gives me shape and it gives me something to work with. And I feel like it even strengthens my fluid verse writing by actually sort of trying to start off in a certain form. So I will break away from form sometimes, most of the time, right? Um, sort of the, the visual I had in my uh, piece, the, uh, the one that represented or seemed to look like a, um, a standardized test, that I, I really wanted to sort of like capture the imagination of readers and, 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 and allow them to see how like children are trying to be, the humanity of children are almost in some way are being um, measured by how well they perform on a test. You know, I want you to sort of see the reality of what a test may look like on a blank page, right? So now you're reading about a child's um, state of existence inside a arbitrary, um, a limiting, um, a fake surface level test. So that was more so me intentionally trying to evoke a raw emotion um, and see how harmful that may be for a child's psyche. But um, yeah, so that is sort of how I process form. Although I know my form may not look like it has any obvious meter or anything like that. Um, I am always thinking through form again. Um, I'm always thinking about like, how can a form help me produce content, but also how my content helps produce a form. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a, that is, that's a heartbreaking poem. It's uh, like testing doesn't tell the whole story. I think it's called. Yeah. It doesn't tell the whole story. It does. And you would think, and many people think it does. Many stakeholders think it does. Yeah, it thinks it tells the very story of who a child is and who a child can become. Well, and kids take so many standardized tests now. Anyway, you you have you're losing entire weeks out of the school year. I mean, in some regards, we could argue that brick and mortar schools have become test taking factories, but that's a whole different conversation. Yeah, yeah, that's that's where the and I have I have extensive opinions about it as, as I'm sure you do too. Oh um, my god. But it, how much they spent on lobbying for a state test, but that's a different story. But we'll keep going. <laughs> <laughs> I, have, I, have, I have questions for you after this is over. Um, so, you that, that poem's so heartbreaking, though, because the speaker says, I'm paraphrasing, but the speaker says something like, His job is to silence the dream of seven year olds because he's mm. got a second grade girl, you know, like, he's mm-hmm. like now sit down. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, but, you know, that made me think about, so that I want to give a quick backstory on how that poem ultimately came about. I had a former student who was retained um, because she did not pass the third grade reading guarantee. So she had to repeat the third grade. And the day before she had to go take the test again, she was outside um, with her family selling waters, not too far from the school. And she didn't, she wasn't, she didn't have time to test prep. She was trying to meet, help her mom and family meet their economic needs. And yet she is expected to be in school and to compute and perform on a test that does not measure divergent abilities, abilities that test testing companies can't measure. So I just wanted to sort of sort of encapsulate um, sort of that reality as well. Oh, gosh, that's that's heartbreaking. Um, yeah. I, so you were the, the 2021 Ohio Poet of the Year. Um, and I was hoping you could talk about that distinction. How it felt, how the collection, you know, what, how, what the collection means to you, and how your outlook is going forward. I mean, you're you're working as a writer full time now. How does that feel? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, a lot of things happen that I personally did not anticipate or imagine. In fact, I didn't even know what Ohio poet meant 
I didn't even know that was a thing. You know, I wasn't abreast on um, sort of that award, that honorary award. In fact, at the time, my publisher let me know. He was like, yo, you are um, Ohio Poet of Year. I'm like, what does that mean? And literally, I was just sort of um, wrestling with um, a, a, a writer's block at that time. Um, so, yeah, it was. Um, but then I, when I learned about it, I'm like, oh, this is a great distinction. And not too many people of color have been recognized for Ohio Poet of the Year. So I thought that was um, very, very important. Um, but, yeah, so for me, it was great because it meant for me that people were paying attention, that um, people were sort of captivated um, by the aliveness of um, Black children. And I felt in that moment like, oh, wow, people are far more curious than I realized, or people are far more compassionate than I realized. You know, to take the time to read a collection about Black children, it has to mean something. You know, it has to mean that there has to be some sense of care, right? And that maybe is my form of um, optimism operating right there on that level. But um, yeah, so that was a great distinction um, because I've never really won a, a literary award, you know, and hopefully this is the beginning of many uh, as it pertains to my poetry. Um, I'm not a big on like publication, believe it or not. Uh, I never really wrote in hoping, I've never wrote in a, in a, on a way of like, oh, I, I'm aspiring for publication. So for me, it was someone um, thought that it had merit and, and notoriety and they put it out there. So it was like, as if made me sort of confirm that I am far more interdependent on others than my own. You know, I am not the most confident writer. So um, the fact that there are people who's willing to um, sort of fill in those moments where I'm sort of, um, I'm missing um, um, courage. Um, I'm missing um, um, confidence, you know, so that was great. Um, in terms of sort of the trajectory that I'm on right now, you know, it's great. You know, um, at some point I'll be able to announce um, more explicitly um, about my literary career. But I can say that um, I received a three major book deal um, where I am working on um, two different um, books. Well, three different books. Um, the first book will be out um, next year for sure, the summer of next year. Um, and it'll be a picture book biography on someone who is a literary uh, champion in my life and uh, um, one of the great literary um, um, human beings who ever walked this face of the earth. And then it's just um, going to be uh, another book after that. And then I'm currently working on a middle grade novel that I'm actively and vigorously writing as we speak. <laughs> um, so, yeah, um, I was able um, to step away um, from my job because I'm um, you know, I was uh, blessed to have the means to do that. And I don't take that lightly because I know a lot of pe writers don't really have the economic privilege to do that. So I feel like sort of the fact that I have ample time to commit to the rigors of writing um, is a testament to sort of my ancestors, my literary ancestors. And I'm harnessing, harnessing this time because I feel like if I'm not, then I'm a disservice to all of my literary ancestors. Um, so yeah, so this is my life of language and I don't really know too much other than the fact that I have, uh, I'm writing um, according to a contract, which is a whole nother level of pressure. But um, yeah, I'm excited to sort of build bridges for other writers to, if that's something that they want to maybe um, support them in that trajectory as well. That's fantastic. You deserve all the confidence in the world having read your work. I'm very excited for what comes next. Um, and I encourage people to check out what you what you have and what what you've got on your plate um could you please wrap us up with a poem yeah sure sure and um the, this next poem i want to be very clear we talk about we've been spent we spent maybe 45 minutes talking about writing i want to be very clear that um writing is very much um, a devoted task and it's it's very long as but it's certainly it's a very hard discipline um so i don't want anyone listening to this to assume that um there is no great difficulties when it comes to writing. Um, I think, you know, the more I read, the more I realize how difficult it is to write, but the more I want to write well. Um, so I'm grateful for all the writers out there who are um, sort of persisting on and writing. And, and because what happens is you evoke um, a sense of um, comfort for other writers who think that this work is far too hard to take on. So because of all the different writers out there, people like me and you and, um, we can write again because um, someone else done it. Um, so this final poem is entitled Ocean. There's a um, 
moving thread of water in this poem. I like to think of a visual extended metaphor of water. I'm using water because water is so expansive. And when I think about sort of possibilities, I'm also thinking about how far they can stretch. And I'm using this water as a case of um, sort of a semblance of, wow, like, at least I get to interact with water because the water signifies something that there's a whole world out there that I'm not aware of. Ocean. My son runs his hands across a puddle outside our apartment. Pretends it's an ocean he can swim in. I sent him to the school I dropped out of, hoping this time the teacher would hand him a telescope so he can see the world for himself. My son's desk looks how I left it. His teachers still haven't told him that this world is a sea of wells. He watches YouTube in class as proof that somewhere water is wider than his classroom. At recess, I used to swing high as moss, pushed high enough. I almost saw beyond the rooftops. I can still feel the hands. I hope he doesn't grow up like me, holding down mop buckets just to keep the water running. I pray he can swim as far as his hands chooses to reach where there's no cliff, no shore, no horizon. I always thought Glenville was the whole damn universe and the sun and moon only had my son to look after. I haven't left, can't afford a U-Haul to carry our shit across the street. My son keeps begging me to take him to see the world. I'm afraid there are only swamps for him to dip his head in. Went to a parent teacher's conference. A poster hung from some nappy ass cobweb read, you can do anything if you put your mind to it. I told my son, that poster may never move us out the hood, but that is not to say his mind is not a grenade because if he uses it, he could explode into a sea of reefs. Thank you. Thank you very much. That was wonderful. That was wonderful. This has been Poetry Spotlight, a production of the Ohio Poetry Association. Please follow the OPA on Twitter at Ohio Poetry and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Ohio Poetry. Visit ohiopoetryassociation.org for more information. Cortez, thank you so much for doing this today. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Mm-hmm.